0: Episode 178 of the Bevan James Isle Show, an interview with Michael Hempseed. radio team, welcome along to episode 178. It is 178 of the Bevan James, I'll show you a fortnightly podcast on the behaviours that create a lifetime love of exercise so you can get all the benefits that come alongside it. Today's show I have an interview with a man called Dr, I think he's a doctor, Michael Hempseed, he's a very academic person, let's put it that way. Uh, And I actually have on a show a while ago and and he kind of contacted me and he said... He wants to talk about the effects of trauma on health. And I've already done the interview, and it's a really interesting insight into the effects of trauma on health and uh, maybe some of the things that you can do to... Especially if you experienced trauma in your early years to kind of overcome this. So we're going to be getting an interview on really soon, and I really enjoyed the interview with Michael. He kind of, you know, when you talk to somebody who just really knows their stuff, uh, and Michael was definitely one of those people. So it was a cool little interview. But before I get into that, I do want to talk quickly about um, my last episode. So the last episode I did the episode on how I've been practicing discipline. And I had a session with one of my clients the other day and they told me how they'd listened to the episode and they thought there was lots of good insight in there and they were trying to practice some of those things. But one thing that kind of came through as I was speaking to my client was this idea that they were taking what I did in my last podcast as discipline is all about work or doing is probably a better way of doing it. Discipline is, the point of discipline is to to kind of get more of those things I feel I should do done in my life. And, um, and while it's understandable that it came across this way, it's not necessarily how I wanted it to come across. Well, no, no, it's not entirely true. What It's not necessarily the complete message. Because as I was speaking to with my client, I was kind of thinking about this, and... Why is discipline important? Well, to me, I think the ultimate outcome we should be all aiming for in self-tools in life is our ability to be present in whatever that is we are doing. I'll repeat that again because it's really important. Our ability to be present in whatever we are doing in this moment. And while when we think about discipline... It's that thing of we can often think that discipline means that I'm always doing. Like there's one person in particular I think about with this. There's a guy called Gary uh, Gary Van Vanichuk, I think his name is Gary V. If anyone in the business world has probably heard of Gary V, he's 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 a very big personality in the podcasting world uh, on YouTube. And Gary V is someone who promotes a workaholic culture. And even when you read his books, you get the feeling I've, I've read most of his books. When you get the feeling that He's one of those guys who promotes one side of his life, but you kind of wonder if other parts of his life may be crumbling because this guy works like a beast. And he's unashamed about it. And he's been very successful because he brings a passion and work ethic to the things he does like not many people bring. And when I look at Gary Vee, I kind of admire the aspect of him, but I also kind of wonder if there's a cost to his life that he doesn't really promote so much. And actually, it was a really good example of that. I was up and um, doing some work a few weeks ago up in Auckland, and I got to speak to, a group of us got to speak to a CEO of a big firm. And I love asking leaders hard questions. And I just asked this lead uh, question was, what's the one thing you need to work on personally as being in this business? And it was really interesting because his answer was, "I the other areas of my life, have a massive cost because of me being a CEO, and it's in my nature to chase this high-level CEO. Like when we think about CEOs, the expectation on them are absolutely huge. And he, and, he, and I loved how honest he was because he basically said, "I kind of think that my my family suffer because of my my role in this life." Now this person came across as a very high-level person, and I imagine this person is a massively disciplined. But to me, I don't think that's the benefit of discipline. To me, and this is what I talk about with my client, is that what we are aiming for is to have a life that fulfills you in more than one area, but we can be present in those areas at the time. So, for example, sure, that CEO can work like a beast when he's at work, but if he was really great at discipline, then when he got home, he could be present with his wife and his kids. And that's what I think about when I think about discipline. Sure, discipline does give me the ability to, to act upon the actions I want to act on more often in my day. But I'm not doing that just so I can work more. I'm not doing it just so I can tick the box of you know achieving more. I'm doing it so that when I get home at night and I've got a couple of hours to spend with Joe, I can be present with Joe. I do it so that when I sit on my piano, I can be creative. And so while discipline is a great trait to have... You want to think of the context you need it for in your life. I look at discipline as a tool that gives me the ability to be more present be more present in the different areas of my life that are important to me. I don't look at it as an opportunity just to work more or just to do more. And sure, there's a level of people who need to bring their scale up, but I just, I just wanted to kind of talk about this because I think it's a really important message that always doing isn't a great life. Like, interestingly, yesterday, I watched a Fury vs Wilder fight, um, I, I, I really love heavyweight boxing, so it was a really fascinating fight, it was a great fight, um, great stories behind it, kind of all involved, and uh, I had a I, I had a pretty doing day, so I woke up in the morning, I had a bit of sleep in, I read my book, and I did, went for a run with Joe, then I did some stuff around the house that needed to be done, and then I spent two hours writing my book, and I had a real doing day, and then, You know, if we're thinking about kind of things that you can took off as achievement. But then my mate Mark and I had planned to kind of watch the fight together. And he he rang me and said, are you going to come over? And in that moment, I was like, yeah, I am. And I wanted to go around and spend a couple of hours with my mate, watching the fight, something I really enjoy, and just being present in that. And when I went around to his house, we actually went down to the local pub, big crew of people there, really fun atmosphere. But I was able to connect with my mate. I was able to watch at a sporting event that I was really excited about, and I was able to just to be present in that experience. If the point of discipline was that I should have worked more in that afternoon and missed out on that boxing experience, I don't know if being that disciplined is worth it. Like to me, to be live a rich experienced life, those moments are just as much as part of it as the two hours I spent writing my book, which was a real disciplined moment in my day. So just to recap on last episode, it was about discipline. But one thing you want to think about before you even think about improving the discipline in your life is to contemplate what's the benefit of this and what do I want to use that benefit for. For me, that benefit is to have more presence in all the different areas of my life at all times. So, before I get into the main gist of today's show, I to something there for you. Uh, before I get into the main gist of today's show, I just want to say a big thank you to all the patrons of the show. The patrons are the people who give some of their hard-earned money to support me in releasing this show every two weeks. Uh, it really does help, seriously, it really does help. I put a lot of time into this, not just the time in producing it, but I put a lot of thought into the topics. And it's amazing, not, not that I'm complaining because I love thinking about these types of topics, but... You know, the people who give me money really does just help me to be able to do this in a way that's really important. So I just want to say a thank you to a few of the patrons. Uh, Josh, complete Alice, he actually comes to my classes at gym. He's What I love about Josh, Josh is a really good example of someone who's shifted in his life. So Josh is this guy who joined the gym a few years ago. I don't think he was that into fitness and he needed to lose a bit of weight. Came to the gym, got into the habit, lost weight. And found the excite habit. But the thing I love about Josh's story is this is probably two or three years ago now, maybe even longer, that he joined the gym. And now he's an exerciser for life. He's got the habit of exercise in place. And what's also really cool about Josh, because I know, I don't know a huge amount about Josh. I've talked to him a few times over the years. Um, but I know he's bought a house. So he's kind of done some life stuff along the way. And he hasn't lost the habit. And that's a really great thing, because a lot of people have these moments of exercise. You may be one of them. You have this moment where you get into exercise, you achieve some goals, and then you pull away. But Josh is just a really great example of somebody who has brought exercise into their life, achieved results, and then learned how to be consistent with it. So it's just really good with Josh. Uh, We've got Sabrina Prick. She's the number one. We've got Ruth Onfire Stub. We've got George Monopoly Man Street. And we've got Dean The Cool Cube cube Cubie these are patrons of the show and they absolutely rock so if you want to be a patron of the show go to bevanjamesisles.com you'll see on my main page there Uh, support me or go to the podcast section and go support the show and it really just helps me do what i'm doing anyway i'm going to put the interview up here is michael hempseed right now Uh, Welcome along team, Uh, well I have an interview here with a man called Michael Hempseed, he's been on the show before, we talked about kind of suicide in his book um, which is called Being a True Hero, Understanding and Preventing Suicide in Your Community, we talked a bit about that last time, we also talked about dealing with kind of traumatic events or overcoming disappointment, but today we're going to be talking about something completely different so welcome to the show Michael.
1: Great to be here.
0: So um, you actually contacted me and you said you wanted to have a talk about this big study that's been released and um, I don't know a huge amount about this, but I thought it sounds pretty interesting, so let's get on the show. So maybe talk to me a little bit about the study.
1: Yeah, so um, just to start off with, um, one of the things many people know is that um, they eat really well, um, they exercise and they don't lose weight. Mm. It's incredibly frustrating, people spend a huge amount of time on this and um, they don't get the results they want. So um, this study that I want to talk about is something called the ACE Study, the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study. Um, going uh, back to 1996, um, there was a centre in San Diego called the Kaiser Permanente Centre for Obesity. Yeah. And they're yeah, working with true. lots... Of, yeah, it's a very, very famous centre. yeah. yeah. And uh, they were working with lots of people there that um, had, um, obviously, problems with obesity. And uh, they went through several programs teaching them how to eat well, exercise, and all these sorts of things. And they did a follow-up study, and they found the results were disastrous. Really? So Um, so they kind of
0: treated with the typical behavior management, you'd go with weight loss?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And they found uh, most of these people didn't lose weight, or when they did lose weight, they put it on very, very quickly. And so the doctors there thought, well, there must be something we're missing here, um, because the standard logic says eat well and exercise and you lose weight. And we've had huge numbers of people come through here, and that hasn't worked. So um, they conducted, I think with about almost 300 people, some really in-depth interviews, trying to find out um, all sorts of factors about their life, what could possibly be going on. Um, They asked all sorts of questions because they had no idea what could be going on. And eventually, when they collated the data, and um, one of the things they identified was that many of the people that just didn 't seem to lose any weight at all or put it on very quickly had experienced sexual abuse in childhood
0: oh wow
1: and um, that was a huge surprise I mean we talk about this quite a lot there's media articles, um, but going back to thousand nine hundred and ninety six and um, this was almost unheard of um, it wasn't not much was known about this. So then they started to realize that, well, um, possibly if this seems to be a very strong factor in all the people that are struggling um, with weight gain, um, possibly there's more to this. So uh, they presented this to a group of um, doctors, and the response they got was um, not very good at all. Um, the doctors didn't seem to take any interest in this, and they thought that um, you know this was just um, an excuse, basically, for what was going on. So um, they thought they're going to need a much bigger study, and um, together with the Centre for Disease Control, which is the big um, centre in America for managing um, illnesses and things, they conducted a huge study with about 17,500 adults all over America, and they asked them about a history of childhood trauma. And they found that um, a history of childhood trauma was associated with a lot of negative health outcomes. Um, Obviously, we could imagine something like that would cause mental health problems, such as depression and PTSD. But the surprise finding was that um, not only does this impact um, your emotional well-being, but it also increased um, people's likelihood of things like excessive weight gain, but then also really serious conditions like cancer and heart attacks. And um, this was a huge surprise at the time, but it got them thinking that actually maybe there's a bit more to this than just the surface things.
0: So, so the question I have is: let's go right back to the start because you know, like you can't make the assumption everybody who's overweight has been sexually abused. So, when we Ab- we're,
1: absolutely not, yeah, yeah. no,
0: and it'd be, it'd be a poor assumption to make. But so, I suppose the first question to, to lead with is: how do we define tra- childhood childhood trauma?
1: Yeah. Um, and then they originally asked 10 questions. So they asked things like um, sexual abuse, physical abuse, emotional abuse. And um, then they also asked things like, uh, has there been a parent that's died? Um, it's okay. normal for, say, um, you know grandparents to die, but um, they found that the death of a parent, particularly in early life, um, was... Also a risk factor. and They looked at things like incarceration um, of a parent. So things that had a significant negative impact on children. Now, as you pointed out, we do have to be very clear. Um, There are some people that have had no trauma and they still struggle with weight, and that could be genetics or something like that. Um, Or behaviour. yep oh absolutely yeah, yeah. um and there certainly was a tr- but there certainly was a trend that childhood trauma did increase the likelihood of some of these things
0: Yeah, is it, is it childhood trauma then that they haven't learned to be able to manage you know like you know because i imagine there are some children who have terrible childhood trauma but then they've got great parents around them or great adults around them who teach them how to manage that in a healthy way um you know i'm, I'm not sure if this study gave you insight into that but was that the case
1: um, the original study didn't. So um, when this research came out, uh, then people started looking at, well, they assumed that you know if someone's been through childhood trauma, they're going to become a heroin addict or they're going to end up in jail. Yeah. But then multiple studies around the world found that there were a surprising number of people that have been through horrendous experiences yeah. and were actually doing quite well. And basically researchers came up with this idea of what we call protective factors. So even if something bad does happen to you, Um, things like, for example, having a strong positive relationship with an adult um, dramatically reduces the chances. And if we think about the city of Christchurch, we had a series of major earthquakes nine years ago, but we don't have 350,000 heroin addicts. Mm. So actually, a lot of people have coped really well with trauma. Now, I do have to be clear that um, these are all statistics. Um, There are some people that, even if they do have protective factors, um, things still go wrong. So all this is based on probability but it's not a guarantee.
0: So so one of the questions you, I got, I got Michael because I said to him send me through some questions because to be honest I don't know much about this and he did the homework for me which is really good but one of the questions you've got here is how do we uh, know what processes causes this in the body?
1: Yes that was one of the big mysteries when this ACE study first came out um, researchers thought well how on earth did something that happened in childhood have such serious consequences later in life? Mm. Um, and it took part of 15 years to figure this out. Um, But one of the things we've learned is that um, traumatic experiences are processed in the mind, not just when they happen, but people relive them. This is how people develop PTSD. And when you develop PTSD, your body activates what's called the fight-flight-faint-or-freeze mechanism, and your body gets pumped full of adrenaline, noradrenaline, and cortisol. Now, the chemical that's most of interest there is cortisol. Um, So this is a great reaction. So if you're in a jungle and a tiger jumps out at you, you want your body to be flooded with this chemical, so you can either run away or fight the thing off or do something to stay alive. So ideally, this should be in your system for maybe 10 to 15 minutes what they found was that people that had experienced childhood trauma they often have this in their system for months or even years wow and one of the big problems we've learned is that cortisol suppresses the immune system uh. Yeah. And that's the big um, insight. So for example, if you are being chased by a tiger, your body says, I want to devote everything that I have to staying alive in this moment. Mm. And your immune system isn't actually that useful. If it's got the choice of a tiger versus, um, you know, fighting off cancer or heart attacks in 20 or 30 years, Mm. um, your body says, well, staying alive in the moment is most important. So um, cortisol diverts energy and uh, resources away from your immune system. Which basically lets
0: down the guard of the immune system at the same time.
1: Yeah, and this is where all these um, health problems come in later in life. So um, we've started to realise that um, childhood trauma can have very serious consequences for people. Now, the good news with all this is that if people get treatment for it, these negative health consequences go away. So it's not inevitable.
0: Well, before we go deeper into that, so a a child has a traumatic event from anything from a loss of a loved one, uh, violence, sexual abuse or something along those lines. Yeah. Uh, so you're then saying that then it triggers the response of the fight-flight kind of that flow-on stuff, and yes. then they basically live in a heightened state with more cortisone in their system, which yes. means immune system-wise, their bodies, but beca- they're just basically creating a, a weaker body to, as they live their day-to-day life.
1: Basically, yep.
0: Wow, that's pretty powerful, isn't it?
1: Yeah, so this was a revelation when this came out. Um, I mean, in the past we thought, well, if something happens to someone in childhood, surely children are going to forget about this, it's not going to matter. Mm. Um, and it took the world quite a long time to realise how important this study was.
0: Yeah, well, it was interesting, actually. I, I had a session with a client the other day, and he, he was telling me he was brought up in a very violent um, environment. His father was very violent towards him. Um, mm. and But his father had also been beaten up quite severely by his father. And yeah. at one point in his childhood, his father realized what he was doing and he stopped. So I think, it, I can't remember the exact age, but let's just say he was like seven at the time. Yeah. Um, and his father stopped. And so he, his father changed his pathway. Uh, and this person has kids now and he doesn't do any of that himself, but he definitely said that um, it affected him really poorly. And it's yeah. something he's always had to work through and there's some damaging behaviours that come alongside that. But also, he also forgave his father because it was this kind of, inter, it was kind of intergenerational. So is this something that we find that people who have been brought up with these traumatic events who yeah. then have the negative effects of it and are living in this heightened state which is ultimately damaging for their body, does that flow onto the people that they influence in their lives?
1: Yeah, so this is um, one of the other big findings that we found. The technical name for this is epigenetics. And basically we found that actually your genes can change with certain experiences. So certain um, experiences turn on certain genes and ter- certain experiences turn off certain genes. Now our bodies are hardwired survival. We've got to remember that um, the modern world we're living in is not particularly what our bodies are designed for. We are hardwired for survival and if something endangered or killed your ancestors, it actually makes sense that that should be encoded in your genes. So there's been some really interesting studies done with rats that um, if you put a rat through a traumatic experience and follow that rat for three generations, we've found the genes that are associated with um, PTSD can be turned on in that third generation, even if that third generation hasn't experienced a a traumatic event.
0: Really? Wow. Yeah. Wow. So, so, So some people almost are born without a chance. Well, not without a chance, but definitely on the back foot
1: yeah so certainly they're behind um and if you want my um answer to why we have such high rates of mental illness today, I would argue we're probably still dealing with the after effects of world war two
0: okay but but how much of that is partly because suddenly it, we're aware of it and people are coming out. You know what I mean like have we always had yeah. mental illness is that we just we've never
1: yes excellent question um so there's a couple of interesting things uh over the summer, I read all these children's books. And um, things like *Wind and the Willows*, *Winnie the Pooh*, yep. and it really amazes me how many children's books actually have characters with severe mental illness. Yeah, um, for example, yeah. Eeyore, um, you know, he's obviously the severely depressed character. Uh, one of the stories is about him losing his tail, and then when his friends find it, they say he says, "Oh, probably lose it again anyway." Mm. And a real so, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, and I think the earliest writings we have about mental illness probably go back about two thousand three hundred years ago. Okay. So mental illness is not in any way new. However, um, we think the rates of it are increasing. One of the first studies sort of looking at the rising rates over time was conducted or published in 1978 called the Catchment Area Study. And they asked people that were born in 1925, so they'd have been 50 years old at the time the study was done, do you remember any instances of depression or mental illness? And they found that um, 1% of the population could remember an experience of this. But then they asked people that were born 25 years later in 1950, and they had a 10% rate of mental illness.
0: Okay, okay, keep going.
1: Yeah, so um, we think that mental illness—we're certainly recognising it more—but we also think that the rates are rising dramatically.
0: And what are the causes?
1: Yeah, so this is obviously one of the big questions. What's um, gone on here to cause yeah. this really sudden rise? Most researchers point to a spike about the years 2010-2011. And um, one of the big things that came out then was smartphones. Oh, wow. Okay. So, um, although I mean, you can't exclusively blame smartphones, um, there quite possibly is a link there. And many people say it's social media. But um, one of the things we know is that smartphones significantly disrupt our sleep. Um, You know, many people sleep with their phones on, they get woken up for important notifications about Grumpy Cat or something like that during the night, and they have terrible sleep. And one of the recent findings is that broken sleep is actually worse than poor sleep. So, um, you know, getting woken up three or four times in the night if your phone goes off, is actually much worse than a shorter sleep.
0: So like if you you can't go to sleep and you know end up only getting four hours eventually, it's better off than getting eight hours but you're waking up five times to check your phone or... Yes. Okay, okay, yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So um, we used to think that um, if someone developed a mental illness like depression or anxiety, then their sleep would be affected as a consequence of that. But in the last 20 years, researchers think it's the other way around. We now think that poor sleep either causes or exacerbates mental illness.
0: So, so are you saying here that with the, with the technology, that's more of a driver than the addiction to the technology?
1: I mean, there's obviously the addiction to technology, but I think there's many factors. Yeah, because um, also the... like things
0: like the expectations from like social media and the comparison and all of those things, which can be damaging as well.
1: Oh, hugely. Yeah. Um, I was just talking to a, um, a couple that have got a newly born baby. And um, one of the things we talked about was um, many of these Um, many people on social media say, oh, my child sleeps perfectly through the night. They never cry and they're always well behaved. And then the reality is many new parents um, don't have that at all. No. And so they have these very unrealistic... Yeah, Yeah, yeah. it's very, very rare for that to happen. And so many people have these incredibly unrealistic expectations and absolutely that puts pressure on people.
0: So so on this front here, what you're saying is that ultimately what, what we should be doing is with devices at least, putting some boundaries in place around them?
1: Yeah. I mean, ideally, don't sleep with your phone in your room. But if you absolutely have to, um, one of the best things is to put your phone in flight mode, your alarm will still sound in that. And that way you're not getting woken up from all these notifications during the night Mm. and put your phone face down. Because one of the things we know is that the light from phones is really bright in your room and that can wake people up. So ideally, don't have your phones in your room, but if people um, feel like their arms are going to fall off if they don't do it, um, put your phone in flight mode and put your phone face down.
0: Do you know one other thing I do as well, because I'm really good at not doing that, I'm really good at not looking at my phone during the night, is I kind of also mentally tell myself, you do not look at your phone at night. You know, I kind of have this subconscious rule that I tell myself... Um, yeah. So if I do wake up, you know, because sometimes you randomly do, I don't have the option of picking up my phone to think, yeah. oh, I'm just going to check the internet right now. It's, it's very much, you no, know, the phone is dead to me until the time the alarm goes off.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that's what we've got to remember is how important sleep is. Um, you know, we talk a lot about eating well and exercising, but actually the thing you need more than that is sleep. If you have just two days with poor sleep, you're at risk you're at risk of a fatal car crash, and you can even develop psychosis where people have um, delusional or irrational thoughts. Yeah. There's a couple of days of poor sleep and things go very, very wrong.
0: Well, and I think, you know, we can say those things, but I think all of us know yeah. that when you've had a couple of nights of really bad sleep, you're just, no. you're the, 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 you know, the 60% version of yourself, aren't you? You just, oh. you know, everything becomes more of a struggle, everything's done a bit poorly, you know, there's a cost, isn't there?
1: Absolutely. Um, and so um, around um, the world, and particularly in America, a lot of professional sports teams, instead of flying a team back after they play a game late at night and then having people with poor sleep, they're paying for an extra night's accommodation. And obviously, if you've got 20 or 30 players, that's really expensive. Mm. But they're finding that it's much better on their overall performance for the players to have good rest.
0: No, going back to this trauma thing, yeah. does the, the sleep habits, you're talking about the cell phones, are a cause for it does trauma create bad sleep habits
1: yeah and this is one of the other things where the two are very closely linked so unfortunately one of the things we know about ptsd is people have a lot of nightmares Mm. Um, and there's a part of sleep called rem or rapid eye movement and that's actually the time of day when you're supposed to process all your memories from the previous day including difficult or traumatic memories but we know people with PTSD wake up roughly ninety to one hundred and twenty minutes in the sleep cycle. Oh, really? So just before they get, to, yeah. So just before they get to this phase of sleep when they're supposed to process these memories, they get woken up by these nightmares. And look, we've probably all had nightmares once or twice. I've worked with people that have literally had nightmares every day of their life for the last thirty years. And if you think about um, having those sorts of nightmares, waking up constantly, what does that do to your overall health? for you know a few days, oh. but what about for weeks or months?
0: Yeah. So, okay, well, I want to take kind of two steps back now. So, yep. you, you know, what we've talked about here so far is that um, traumatic life events that can happen to children can have this adverse effect on their health, uh, which ultimately affects your immune system and makes them a weaker version of themselves, which leads to health problems, weight loss, and things like that, and even things yeah. like lack of sleep. So basically, you end up in this place where it's almost like you're working against yourself and it's almost seems really hard. So th- if we go back to that, there's probably two things to really address here. When we know a child in our life has had a traumatic event, yeah. and I'll, I'll, sh- I'll throw the two questions at you first and then we'll kind of explore them. But when we know a child in our life has had a traumatic event, you know, I've got, I've got a good friend right now and last year they had some pretty traumatic events. And uh, so how do we make sure we're not setting up that place where they are cortisol high, setting up a bad future for themselves. What are the roles of those around those kids to help them move forward in in a way where they are going to be healthier?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So um, this is where it's really important to remember how important connections are. Mm. So study after study has shown that the most important thing that we can have for a child to do well in life is at least one positive stable adult, ideally several positive stable adults. And unfortunately, we live in a world that um, promotes individualism, but actually um, that doesn't help children at all. Mm. So um, certainly research shows, for example, um, obviously sexual abuse is terrible, um, but often what happens afterwards actually has a bigger impact on the outcomes for the person. So for example, if the person is not believed by their family or if their family um, ignores it or covers it up, that often has a terrible impact on the person. But if the family does believe them, if they acknowledge it and if they support them through that, that often dramatically changes the outcomes. Okay.
0: So, but I'm a, let's, okay, I'm an adult. I know yeah. a kid around me has lost their parent. You say be a yeah. positive, but what does that mean?
1: I think just being there, you know, um, if there's a child, you know, maybe taking them out for a walk or to play sport or, um, you know, do something with them. Okay. Um, it's these positive... Um, human connections that make a huge huge difference.
0: So it could, it could be a simple way as being, um, being a, a, a consistent presence yeah. that um, comes with caring and love and understanding yeah. and, and kind of trying to boost that, that kid's kind of place in their own life
1: Absolutely So your, your
0: communication will be about supportive mm-hmm. about pointing out the good things about them but also be able to listen and be able to open them up to their emotional side so they can feel free to express to you
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think sometimes adults feel like they've got to say the right things, you know, they've got to make it all better. And yet when I've talked to many people that have been through difficult experiences, they often say the things that really mattered to them was having a friend sit with them and have a cup of tea. Mm. Even if they didn't say anything, Mm. there was something really powerful about just being there with the person. Yeah.
0: Well, I think also the one thing that's really important to acknowledge at this moment is that support isn't always problem solving. And I think for a lot of people when, especially as adults, because adults see ourselves as having a more life experience, kind of knowing a bit more, we've been where you've been kind of thing, um, that when we think about supporting kids we almost want to problem solve for them and sometimes our role is actually like I just think of um, the child in my life who I've kind of supported in the last period of time yeah. I just knew my job was just to listen to them yeah, you know, and and just do reflective listening, maybe ask some questions to help guide them but I, I knew yeah. it wasn't my job to tell them what to do um, and I just think sometimes as an adult we do know more about life than the kids but yeah. we can just get to that kind of tell them how to deal with stuff and just that perspective, you know, my job right now is just to be a good, reflective person for that life, so that kids, so they can open up and express their emotions.
1: Yeah. Um, one example I'd use with adults is, um, say, if you're at work and you jam the photocopier and you tell someone about it, if they say, have you read the instruction manual? Mm. You don't often feel like taking out the instruction manual. You often feel like punching the person. Yeah, yeah. Because you actually just want someone to listen.
0: You yeah, just want to vent your frustration, don't you?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I think this is where we really underestimate the power of just listening without, um, you know, problem solving or saying, you know, I've been there or, you know, I read this thing on the internet, try this. Just listening to people and being there with people makes such a difference.
0: Which And if you're listening to this, that's an art form in itself. And to me, one of the greatest tools you can use around this is when you're in a place where you know your job is to be empathetic and just show understanding. A question I always just put in my head is, what's it like to be that person right now? Yeah. so so i'm not doing i'm not going um what's the problem how do I solve it and, and I definitely do it in other times in my life but if you can catch that moment where your role is to show understanding just literally just say to yourself what's it like to be that person right now and as they're talking to you just kind of see what it feels like you know and then maybe yeah. you can communicate that back to them
1: Yeah, There was a really interesting study done about 20 years ago where um, a group of researchers looked at the way that parents and teenagers communicate. And often they found that, well, parents felt that when they asked their teenagers, how's it going, what's going on for you, the teenager would say, I don't know. But they found there were some parents that did actually um, were able to strike up a conversation. And they looked at, well, what was the difference between the way that um, some parents communicate and the ways that others do? And what they found was that the parents that were able to express empathy, Um, so, for example, if a teenager said, I've had a really tough day at school, if they said something like, that's just awful, sounds like you've had a really tough day, that must be very frustrating. Mm. Um, If you express empathy, um, rather than just saying, well, did you talk to the teacher or did you try and ignore it? If you express empathy first, um, they were the parents that actually were able to strike up a conversation with their young people. And so I think um, we often forget the importance of empathy We often want to rush in and just solve the problem when actually what people want us to do is listen. Yeah,
0: there's a great, I'm sure you've heard of John Gottman. Um, He's got a great book called Raising an Emotionally Intelligent Child, which um, I'll put a link to this in the show note, which is really good for for, um, parents to read because it just gives you a good framework to practice around this stuff. And it's all the stuff that Michael's talking about here. It's, It's showing them the understanding, communicating it back to them. It just allows your kid to kind of deal with emotions in a much healthier way.
1: Yeah, Um John Gottman's probably one of the most famous um, relationship yeah. experts in the world, so he's brilliant work. Yeah. yeah,
0: he's a legend. So, okay, so so that's mm-hmm. our role when we know there's a kid in our life who's going through a traumatic event or been through a traumatic event to kind of be the adult who stands beside them, supports them, guides them, um, and, and kind of positively be a part of their life. So, but what about the person who's listening to this right now who's an adult, yeah. who's overweight, and they know they've had that traumatic event, and they're listening to this. Are they screwed?
1: Not at all. Okay. This is the amazing thing um, about the research. It shows that you know even if really bad things have happened to you, it doesn't mean that negative outcomes um, are negative inevitable. Be. Yeah. Okay. So, um, you know, I've worked with many people that have experienced um, terrible, terrible trauma in their life, um, people that have been suicidal, and often when people ask me, you know, what's my life like, they think I must be this sad, depressed person. Mm-hmm. Actually, it's the most amazingly joyful job I've ever had because, yes, I've seen people in terrible states of distress, sometimes what might be the worst day of their lives when everything has gone wrong. But the good news is with the right help and support, the majority of people can at least get better, um, if not improve the situation dramatically.
0: So how how do we go about doing that? Because let's say say it is that weight loss person. So the person is overweight, but if they reflect upon their childhood, there was a traumatic event, and they're listening to this right now. And they know they didn't really get dealt with well and they can understand that. Now, they've often often probably looked at a weight loss problem as, as you said, a nutrition slash exercise problem. Um, Obviously, what you're saying is not that you need to neglect those, but that there needs to be another aspect to this, which is the emotional repairing of yourself.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Okay.
0: And how would you go about doing that?
1: Yeah. So um, the bad news is there isn't sort of one size fits all. You know, there's not this 10-week program. Uh, But what we have found is there's many different ways to heal from this. So, um, for example, some people um, do need medication. You know, for some people with all that cortisol in their systems, they have a really high heart rate. And actually, sometimes medication is needed to bring that down before you can start to work on some of these other things. Um, For some people, counselling can be really helpful, you know, talking through what happened. Um, One of the tragic things about trauma often is, particularly if it happens to young children, they blame themselves. They have this tremendous sense of guilt that it was their fault. And, of course, we know that young children, there is no possible way they could bring this on themselves. Um, But we find that people 30, 40 years later, you know, if something goes wrong in the workplace, even if it was nothing um, that they could have controlled in any way, Mm -hmm. people still blame themselves. So um, this is not something that you can fix sort of in five minutes, but um, a good counsellor with this could possibly help you work through some of the self-blame, sometimes Mm. self-hatred. So that certainly can help. However, in recent years, we've found that um, one of the ways that trauma affects a lot of people is there's a part of the brain called Broker's Area. That's the speech and language part of the brain. And we've done brain scans on people with this uh, that have experienced trauma and we've found the speech and language part of the brain doesn't work so well. So counselling can be good for some people, but there's other people that can't just talk about it. Okay. And um, if you listen carefully to many people that have been through bad experiences and you ask them what happened, they often say, I don't know. And they're not being difficult to define. They actually can't find the words to express this.
0: So, so internally they may know the experience, but they just don't have the ability to communicate that to the world.
1: Yeah. And so um, the last 10, 15 years, there's been a huge emphasis on um, other forms of treatment that don't just involve talking. So, for example, there's things like art or drama therapy. Uh, There's been some really interesting work done in New York with um, male survivors of sexual abuse um, that use Shakespeare to sort of act out as another person, um, not obviously acting out the trauma, but... Mm. Um, to sometimes act out the emotions associated with that. Yeah. And um, you think, oh, Shakespeare, how on earth would that cure this? It um, doesn't work for everyone. But for some people, they found that being able to act out their emotions in a safe environment and for finally being able to express what has happened to them in a safe way yeah. um, without being able to talk about it can be really helpful. Um In the same way, art therapy, Um, again, with a trained therapist, if people can't talk about what's happened, but sometimes creating an artwork where they just um, grab some paint and draw this sort of anger, this rage, and then it's a way of getting these negative emotions out of you, finally showing another person and um, being able to process this.
0: I imagine... Your traditional basic things like, does meditation, does journaling, does, do those, you know, and obviously you're going to say good sleep, do those things help as well?
1: Yeah, so um, one of the things we have to differentiate is things that help between mild and moderate mental illness okay. and severe mental illness. Okay, great. Um, so, for example, you know, if someone's got a common cold, um, you know, usually a couple of weeks bed rest will help. It's a um, you know, Yeah, yeah, yeah it's okay. usually pretty straightforward. Um, obviously, if someone's got cancer, yeah. um, you know, bed rest isn't nece- uh, isn't yeah. going to work. You need more help. Yeah. So, um, certainly things like journaling um, that can be a fantastic way for some people to get these thoughts and emotions out. Okay. Um, meditation, I mean, one of the things we know that is an antidote to cortisol is a chemical called GABA, the relaxing chemical, and you bring this on by breathing slowly. Okay, so, and so, medit- okay, yeah. yep, so meditation can work. However, one of the slight problems we found is that for 25% of people that try meditation and mindfulness, they have really unpleasant experiences with this. Um, and unfortunately, these are often the people with PTSD. Okay. Um, so, in the same way you know if you give a um healthy person so if you give a sick person a shot of adrenaline that's had an allergic reaction to something that can save their life um, but sometimes if you give it to the wrong person, it can cause more harm mm. so um meditation can work and I would encourage people to try it, but if you start having all these negative flashbacks, then you should stop
0: mm. Mm. so I, so 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 I suppose what you're saying here is that for those adults who are listening to this and, and identifying with what you've kind of brought up here and are in that place where maybe they have tried to lose weight is that, you know it's about broadening how you deal with the problem so it is you're not just a weight uh, sorry nutrition slash exercise problem it's a nutrition slash exercise slash working out healthy ways to deal with the trauma that i've dealt with in my life um yeah. and, and there's not necessarily a one foot all kind of formula that's going to sit in that but what we can do is it's your job to explore methods that can help you in this area.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I'll talk about another one that shows great promise. Um, I talked about the fact before there's a phase of sleep called REM sleep. Yeah, yeah. That's when you're supposed to process all these negative emotions. And of course, the problem with PTSD is you wake up just before you get to this really healing phase Mm. of sleep. So researchers have come up with something called EMDR, which stands for Eye Movement Desensitization and Reprocessing. And it sounds like this crazy therapy that involves um, you talking about trauma and a therapist moving their finger in front of your face left to right. And you think, well, how on earth does that even make a difference? Um, But what researchers have found is that the phase of sleep called REM is called rapid eye movement Mm. because your eyes move left to right at night. And so the theory with EMDR is that it seems to trick the brain into thinking it's in this phase of sleep where you can process all these negative emotions.
0: And so it's kind of like tricking yourself into having REM.
1: That seems to be the theory. Wow. Um, I mean, no one knows quite why it works, but researchers have looked at, um, is maybe the eye movement just a distraction? And they've um, done it with other things, and it does seem to be something about the eye movement that does seem to be a really healing part for people.
0: Wow, Wow fascinating, isn't it? Um, okay, anything else that you'd want to kind of, any, anything else you want to kind of add on top of this?
1: Yeah, um, and I think for intergenerational trauma, um, there's one book that I'd really highly recommend by um, Mark Woollen, and it's called It Didn't Start With You. Okay, keep talking. Um, Yeah, that's a fantastic book. Um, By the way, I've got a website called beingatruehero.com. For just such emergencies, I've listed a whole lot of um, uh, books and resources on there, and that's one of the books that I've listed on there. And um, so I talk to a lot of workplaces, and it amazes me as I go around, out of all the things that I talk about, intergenerational trauma is probably one of the ones that comes up the most. Because often people are aware that something happened to their grandparents, their parents, and they realize they're repeating the cycle, okay. and they haven't really known what to do about that. Mm. Uh, but if you forget everything else about what I've said in this podcast, the one thing I want you to remember is that there is hope, and we're finding better and better ways to treat this.
0: Okay, yeah, and that's a really because that is the that's such an important message, isn't it? Because a lot of people just think this is life, yeah. You know, and, and this is just the way it has to be. And and it's a really important thing for all of us to remember is that we can progress in areas, even areas that are, are so ingrained in us. Yeah. But it does take effort, and it does take the courage to work on working on yourself.
1: Yeah, and this is not like driving through McDonald's. You know, you don't get um, what yeah. you want in five minutes. Yeah, it's, it takes um, a lot of effort, doesn't it? Yeah, so I'm the chair of the Canterbury Men's Centre. We've got many men there that experience sexual abuse in childhood. And a lot of them say they'll go for therapy and that might help them at one stage. But then maybe when they get married or they have a child or they have a significant change, then they need a bit more. So it's not as though um, you necessarily um, do all the work and then uh, that's fixed for life. So I think the idea of having a top-up and maybe needing a bit more because I think a lot of people feel like they're a failure if they have to go back. You know, yeah. if they have therapy and they think, oh, things still yeah. aren't right, I've got to go back, and they feel worse about themselves. And actually we need to emphasize that often part of the journey is going back several times. Yeah. You're not a failure, it's just part of the course.
0: And, and part of your journey is to learn when you do feel you're going back and is to learn to act quickly.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And starting to recognize the warning signs. Um so there was uh, one person I talked to. He had, had had been sexually abused as a child, and he had nightmares literally every single night of his life, probably for 30 or 40 years. Wow. Um, yet he tried EMDR, and it was difficult. You know, it wasn't an easy process, and it did take a bit of time. But he says now, for the first time ever, I can actually get a good night's sleep.
0: Wow! And, and think about the flow and effect of that, based on what we've talked about today.
1: Yeah. yeah. Um, now that doesn't mean his life is perfect and he never thinks about what happens yeah. there are still challenges but to go from you know having horrendous sleep and we know there's a lot of um, health problems associated with poor sleep to suddenly be able to um, get a few good nights sleep and not have these incredibly attacking invasive memories is huge
0: and, and probably just lastly on top of all of this is that for those of you who are listening to this today and, and we are speaking to you um, and you haven't confronted it you know It does take a lot of courage, but if you get the right people around you and you can create a safe place for you to do this, there is a way through.
1: Yeah. One of the really sad findings is that um, for people that do disclose a significant negative event in their lives, if the first reaction they get is not a positive one, it it, it often takes 20 or 30 years before they tell another person. Wow. So to the people listening to this, that if you did try and tell someone and they didn't understand – don't give up, there will be people that will understand, there will be people that will listen, so if things haven't gone well in the past, and if you have tried to maybe tell a counsellor and they didn't understand, don't stop there. Um, I also host a radio show in Christchurch, and I've asked person after person with personal experience of mental illness, if you had one bit of advice for someone going through this, what would it be? And person after person has said, I wished I knew I could change counsellors or doctors. Uh, okay. So, in other words, if the help you're getting is not helping, don't just assume well all doctors or all counsellors are like this. There is a huge difference.
0: Yeah. So, so don't be afraid to try elsewhere.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, if it's not working out. Now, um, one of the other things with particularly depression is some people have this mind fog where they just can't think, they can't concentrate. So, I've talked about a lot of different forms of help today. And if you're thinking, this is all just too overwhelming, I don't know what to do, I don't know where to go, go see your GP. That's one place to go to. Which, which um, for people t- overseas, is your doctor. In New Zealand,
0: we call it GP, yeah. but just your doctor. Oh, so, yeah, so,
1: yeah okay. that would be helpful. Good yeah. point. <laughs> um, yeah. So, uh, You know, if um, you are finding this all too overwhelming, go see your GP. And I think in the community, we often say to people, speak up. Or, you know, if you're in a bad way, talk about it or do something. But people with severe mental illness, they often don't recognize what's going on within them. Mm. um, With this mind fog it makes even things like choosing a breakfast cereal at the supermarket almost impossible. And we expect people that um, can't choose a breakfast cereal to, you know, look, Google, um, you know, lots of different types of help and try and find out what's going on. So I think one of the big things, instead of having the speak up model where we tell people to get help themselves, we need to have the concerned community model where if you recognize that someone is not coping, you should go up to them and don't say, how are you? Because if you say, how are you, people automatically say, I'm fine. Instead, if you say something like, I have noticed – So I've noticed that you used to come to work um, before we start, but now you're coming in later and later. Mm. I'm not angry. I am concerned about you.
0: Mm, Okay. Nice. So it comes with a more empathetic approach.
1: Yeah, absolutely. and, And
0: allows them to open up to maybe expressing that they need help.
1: Yeah. And quite often I'll come into workplaces and there's someone with severe mental illness and I'll ask, you know, how long has this been going on for? And people often say 18 months or two years. And I think one of the other mistakes we make is that if there's 30 or 40 people in the office, everyone thinks someone else will do something about this. Mm-hmm. And of course, no one does. Yeah. So if you know someone, it doesn't matter who it is, it could be a neighbor, it could be a colleague, um, it could be a friend. If you notice that someone is not coping make it your personal responsibility to either go up to that person and have a conversation, or if you think it's someone you don't get on with well, tell a manager, tell a supervisor, tell someone else. But basically, if you see something, make it your personal responsibility to um, get that person help in one form or another.
0: And what we're ultimately saying there is that kind of I have noticed kind of conversation and say, ultimately what you're trying to do is get into the doctor.
1: Yes, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Um, and just one thing I will mention with all this, um, many of the things we've talked about today are okay, but if someone has, say, a, a catastrophic mental health breakdown, um, sometimes actually the only option is to call the emergency services. Yeah. Sometimes this is not something you can manage. No. Um, sometimes actually you need professional help with the person immediately. Yeah. So, um, for example, if you think someone's in danger of immediate death or serious harm, don't be afraid to call, you know, in New Zealand 111 or in Australia yeah. 000. Yeah. Um, but if you need the emergency services and you think someone's in danger, don't be afraid to call that. Straight away. Yeah, i found quite a lot of people don't realise that you can call the emergency services for a mental health crisis. Okay. They think it's only a physical health crisis. Yeah. But, you know, if someone's in danger of serious harm, you can do that. Yeah.
0: And it's your kind of your responsibility, is what you're saying, really, aren't you?
1: Yes, absolutely. Yeah.
0: Okay. Um, if you want to follow Michael, your website is
1: beingatruehero.com
0: Um, and he's gonna, as he said earlier, he's got some of those resources on there. You can also check out his book, uh, "Being a True Hero: Understanding and Preventing Suicide in Your Community," and just really good stuff there, mate. And some really important conversations. Um, again, I think ultimately what we're saying here is that if you know there has been that traumatic event you can work through it but it does take effort it does take support so open up to the right people work towards a pathway of working on developing the pathway forward and then you know as Michael said there might always be a part of your life that's part of it but if you've learned to deal in a better way you're going to have a healthier life moving forward and it's so important so thank you for coming on the show today Michael.
1: Brilliant to be here.
0: Yeah, that's a pretty interesting some interesting stuff in there, isn't there? Pretty fascinating stuff. Now if you want to check out Michael Weev's website, I'll put it to a link to it on my website with the show notes for this episode. Go to bevanjamesisles.com, uh, he's got a book you can check out, but he also sent me through a link to all the resources. So I'll put a link to that in the show notes for this episode. So thank you Michael for coming on. Uh just some really good insight in there. And again, just to recap, I know I did kind of a recap at the end, but remember What you're looking to do is not just look, particularly as you're trying to lose weight, but just anyone who knows you've had a traumatic child event that you haven't dealt with, aim to kind of add that component of dealing with it and working through it with the right people in the right way moving forward because um, obviously the health benefits are huge. But if you've sat in this for a long time, man, it's a burden on your life. And if you can learn to let that go or at least work through it and find a better way to manage it within yourself, there's some pretty there's some pretty powerful things that happen in your life team if you want to support the show go to bevanjamesisles.com it's a way that you can support me in what i do become a patron of the show and what happens basically is each time i release an episode you just give me a little bit of your hard-earned money it's as simple as that uh when you do it you get a cool bevan jamesisles nickname which is kind of cool as well uh and that's pretty much all on that front another way you can support the show is going on your podcatch and writing review about the show which is kind of cool um i'm not sure if i've read this one out before but it's 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 pretty awesome it's pretty big uh this is from someone's called secondhand princess now i'm not sure how that works but after uh having a yo-yo with my waited for a life oh this is such a good email I'm i'm gonna so here's here's a here's a a review that somebody put on I think it's Apple podcast and it's got here after having a yo-yoed with my weight This is the last time I'll be leaning down and peeling it off I'm putting uh, all stops here and that's how I came across Bevan's podcast Three times I've lost and gained weight of around 15 KJ each time and it's dawned on me that i would never been successful I'd never changed my attitude or relationship to food and exercise the weight loss was merely a process and I didn't acknowledge the achievement and get to the maintenance phase, it's really made me examine myself talk, environment, patterns, behaviour, and triggers a whole lot more than just eating clean and exercising, in my opinion, the missing ingredients. I like Bevan's frank perspective for interesting topics and discussions that lead me really analysing the pop- podcast topic its and its applicability application to me. Overachiever, worked myself and burnt out. Ate to console myself. Thirty-seven year old. Off to uni next year for a totally new, different direction in life. My pre-uni course didn't achieve. I achieved an A minus plus. Last week, I returned to my beloved badminton. Used to play for when I, for representatives when I was younger, and transfixed to fix to moving my life in a new direction, possibly full of positivity, hard work, entertainment. One area I need the most help in is self-talk and a desire to change my perspective towards situations I'm confronted with. Very late to the show, I'm listening from episode one up to now. Just downloaded the PDF, so this person's getting right into it. Bevan, I know that you're an amazing athlete, but I want you to know that you reach even little people like me who are trying to build new ways of thinking but have no experience or wishes to draw upon. Keep it up, bro. Love your Kiwisms at the end of your podcast. Oh, no. Yeah, it's just going to sit there as well, so something else as well. But just... Obviously, something about this podcast has made this person get inspired. So uh, if you want to write a review about this podcast, please. It just helps spread the word about podcasts. You know, a lot of podcasts out there nowadays. So just, you know, do your love and put your review on your local podcatcher. Other than that, that's pretty much the show done. And Dusted, I always finish off saying, keep being yourself. So keep doing that. And I'll see you in a couple of weeks' time.